we consider this little book over the next three weeks, let's go to the Lord and ask for His help as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things in Your Word today. And Lord, we ask that You would help us to store it up in our hearts so that we might not sin against You. Oh, Lord, do these things for our good and Your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to break the usual pattern that we do here at Covenant Hope, which is where we would read the whole text aloud and consider it. But since it's two chapters today, we'll be looking at Micah chapter 1 and 2. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but let me encourage you over the next few weeks to read the passage ahead of time before you arrive at the church service to prepare your heart for what you're about to hear, as I won't be reading it aloud. That's a good practice to do any week even if you suspect that we will read the text, to just prepare your heart by reading ahead. So today I'm not going to read all of chapter 1 and 2 to you, otherwise we'd be here until late into the evening. But if the book of Micah, if this first prophecy that we're going to consider today, if it were a newspaper front page, the headline would read as follows. Judgment is coming, but so is salvation. Judgment is coming, but so is salvation. And so there's going to be two points to the sermon. Judgment is coming, point one, and so is salvation, point two. Now, let me just warn you up front of the 29 verses that make up this first sermon. 27 of the 29 verses are focused on a word of judgment from the Lord. And so the first point is going to be significantly longer than the second point. Most of the sermon will be point one. And so when, after 35 or 40 minutes, and I say, now to point two, don't lose heart. (laughs) Don't, Don't get mad with me. We're close to the end at that point. So let's consider the first point. Judgment is coming. We see that in chapter one, verse two, all the way to Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, after a a brief introduction to the book in verse 1. So, look there in verse 1. This is kind of a title for the book. Even before we read the name of the prophet who the book is titled after in our English Bibles, we're told of the origin of the content of the book. We're told that it's the Word of the Lord that came, and so we should pay close attention. The words that we have here are God's words. They're not ultimately Micah's words. The sermon you'll hear today are not ultimately based on my words and my thoughts. They are God's words, the words of the Lord. And then we're told that God's word came to Micah of Morsha. Now, that name Micah means who is like Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is like the Lord. And so, as you can imagine, in Israel, that was a pretty common name. I think there's over 20 different Micahs in the Old Testament that we have in our Scriptures. And so, other than what we see here in chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, we really don't know a whole lot about this particular Micah. We don't know much about him. He's identified here not by his lineage, not by his father's name, but by the place that he's from, Morasheth. 
And Moresheth was a village that was 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. That distance, you know, 25 miles, that's like the distance from this deck building to the Dera city center. And so Micah, he wasn't a city boy, he was a village boy. Maybe some of you can relate to that, being a village boy, not a city boy. And he's not one of the famous prophets that we hear so much about throughout the Scriptures, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But yet, God chose to use this man in a mighty way to deliver God's Word to His people. We should stop for just a moment and just be encouraged by that. Micah is the equivalent of a small town unheard of preacher, and yet God used him to give us one of his eternal inspired books of the Bible. He can, God can use anybody to do whatever he wants, to do amazing things when they're devoted to him. God can use you, and he can use me. We're told that Micah prophesied, and we're told when he prophesied, it was during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and we're told those are the kings of Judah, and that was where Moresheth was in the southern kingdom, and that's where the bulk of the, of the, the book as a whole is focused on. But it tells us there that it was concerning Samaria as well. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom. This was after King David's, uh, King David's reign, and then his son, King Solomon's reign. Soon after that, the, the kingdom of God, the people of Israel, broke into, into a northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. You can read about these kings, about Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. You can read about them in 2 Kings chapters 15 to 20, so that might be worth your time this week to read about what was it like during the, these days that Micah prophesied. But just to summarize for you, Jotham was a decent king, and, and so was Hezekiah. He was pretty decent. He was okay. But Ahaz, Jotham's son, he stands out amongst these three for his idolatry. In fact, just to quote from uh, the book of Kings, it tells us that Ahaz burned his son as an offering according to the, the despicable practices of the nations. So, Ahaz offered his own son as a sacrifice to foreign gods. So there were definitely different seasons in the ministry of Micah that he experienced in approximately 35 years of his role as a prophet of Judah. And he faced even some of the darkest moments that the nation faced. Now, the book summarizes Micah's message to God's people during these years, and they're organized into three oracles or a trilogy of prophecies, each beginning with a call to hear. We see that in chapter 1, verse 2, in 3, 1, and 6, 1, which is, funnily enough, how we broke up the sermon series. Each of the three prophecies, we'll look at one this week, the second one next week, and the third uh, the week after. If you turn in your bulletins to page 13, there's a little map there, some places that are going to be mentioned in the text today, but you'll see a very simple outline of the book, a very, very simple outline of the book. 
Prophecy 1 is about judgment and salvation. Prophecy 2 is about judgment and salvation. And prophecy number 3, guess what? Judgment and then salvation. So, just noticing that is helpful for us to see the structure of the book, but it's, it's also helpful when we, when we read any of the Old Testament prophets. This is a common uh, technique that they use, and they, they repeat the same ideas over and over again. And they look at them from slightly different angles, slightly different uh, ways of focusing on these topics, but they repeat them over and over again. That might feel monotonous to you as you're reading through the Bible, but this was very common and it was the purpose of this was to consider the same topic from several different perspectives and, and to get a bigger, fuller picture of, of the idea that the author wants to address. The way my Old Testament professor, uh, when I was in seminary, um, explained it was he compared it to listening to something in surround sound. So, they have this commonly in movie theaters now, but even with musical things where there's multiple speakers playing the same piece of music. And, and they have different things coming out of different speakers, but they're all the same, the same idea, the same piece of music. And when you hear these different pieces together surrounding you, it gives a fuller sound. It gives a, a greater picture, maybe a 3D image of the idea for you. Every layer of sound helps us to hear better, and it adds to the emphasis of what the author is trying to communicate. And so, this repetition, it's purposeful. It's not redundant. Don't grow tired of listening, even if it seems like he's saying the same thing over and over again. There's a point to it. Now, our first prophecy begins in verse 2 of chapter 1 here with a breathtaking description. Look at verses 2 through 7. There's this incredible description of the Lord God Himself emerging from His throne room in heaven and calling the whole universe, the whole world, to attention. Look there in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Even here in the, these few words, we see on a small scale that, that surround sound effect. Did you notice it? Hear, pay attention. You peoples, O earth, all of you, all that is in it. We're getting a fuller and fuller picture as we read these repetitions. And we hear the urgency with which God is addressing His people. God descends from His holy temple in heaven and addresses His own people, but He also calls the whole world to pay attention to. The Lord is not just the God of Israel and Judah. He's the God of the entire universe. He's the God of you and of me. And so He commands all peoples to assemble themselves together as He bears witness against His sinful people. He's going to pronounce judgment on them. And if His own people won't escape His judgment, neither will any other nation or people of the earth. And picture what He describes next in verses two and, uh, 3 and 4. God steps out of heaven 
onto the mountains, onto the high places of the earth, and they melt. They melt like a candle wax would melt with a flame. Can you imagine a mountain melting? Consider that. What would that even look like? Dripping and pouring down just like a candle and then being no more. This week I was trying to picture this in my mind, and so I thought of an avalanche. And I watched some videos on YouTube of avalanches. That might sound strange, but they're, they're incredibly terrifying avalanches. If one happens, there's literally nothing you can do to get out of the way of them. They wipe out everything in their path. Whole buildings or streets or towns, peoples. But this is even more than an avalanche. The whole world melts before the Lord here. Why does Micah and the Lord begin here with this picture? Well, it's a, it's a picture of the unfathomable power of God Himself coming in judgment. This ought to inspire an awe and a fear in every single one of us and stir fear in our hearts at the awesomeness of our holy God coming in judgment. This description of God descending upon the mountain is reminiscent of when God descended on Mount Sinai. As we read in the book of Exodus, that God came in fire and smoke. It looked like the whole mountain was melting. It looked like it was on fire. God's people that had just been delivered by His mighty hand trembled at the foot of the mountain and pleaded with Moses not to allow God to speak to them anymore. But this was God coming to make a covenant with His people, to promise His blessings to His people. Whereas here in Micah, what we see is God arriving because His people have broken that covenant with Him. Nothing can stand before such awesome transcendence when God appears in judgment. And look, look at verse 5 where we see why He's come. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now both the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south have been unfaithful to the Lord. He's come to bring judgment on Samaria and to Jerusalem, epitomes of the whole nations. Samaria and Jerusalem, the capitals, stand for all of the peoples. And you want to know what's wrong, the Lord says? Look at Samaria. Look at Jerusalem. The prophet mentions the high place of Judah. We've already seen the Lord descend on the high place of the mountain, and here he talks about the high places of Judah. These high places or mountains were understood as the place where heaven meets earth. That's what we see when we see a mountain. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where God and man meet. And of course, we do see that throughout the Bible. We see it where God would come and meet with Moses on a mountain. We see it where God met with Israel on Mount Sinai. And even the temple where God's dwelling place was built in Jerusalem was built on the top of a mount, on a high place. 
But what God's speaking about here is how the people had turned from meeting the Lord to setting up their own high places, who had built their own alternative worship sites to worship foreign gods, not the one true God, the God of Israel, the Lord. They had violated the first and most fundamental part of the covenant. Think of the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God had given. You shall have no other gods before me. The covenant that God made was, it was, it was like a marriage covenant. It was a covenant that bound the Lord to His people and them to Him. It was to bind them to Himself in faithful, loyal love, like a marriage, a sweet marriage. But God's people had committed spiritual adultery. They had cheated on the Lord with other gods. How devastating. It's horrible in a, in a human marriage, but when God has made a covenant with His people, how much worse to commit spiritual adultery against Him. And so God says He's going to utterly wipe out Samaria. We see a description of total annihilation for this capital city. He describes it as being a place for planting vineyards. That, that, that is not a good thing. It might sound like a pleasant thing. Oh, planting vineyards, that sounds nice. But no, this is not a good thing. It means that their capital city is a barren wasteland. You don't have wide open fields that are good for planting crops in capital cities unless something has leveled the place and totally annihilated the dwellings that were there. And there in verse 7, look at verse 7, we see the totality of the destruction that God is going to bring with the repetition of all. All her carved images beaten all her wages burned, all her idols laid waste. And if that weren't enough, we learn where the money for this idolatrous practice had come from and where it was going. To the fee of a prostitute, it says. Oftentimes, with these cultic worship practices, sexual immorality was closely connected. It was because of believing that this might encourage the gods to help them to be fruitful by having this intimacy in practice in their worship. It's so, it's so wretched. Now, this could be literal. This could have been what was taking place in Jerusalem, or it could just be a vivid depiction of the adultery that they were committing spiritually. But either way, what's happening is gross. It's disgusting. One thing to note is that God here addresses the capital cities with these judgments. He addresses the north and the south capitals as the epicenter of idolatrous behavior. And we're going to see other smaller towns and villages mentioned too, but up front it's the capital cities that are called out. It's the major metropolises. Now, that doesn't mean that villages are holier places than cities. It doesn't mean that you and I should make plans to leave Dubai and let's move to Ajman together because there'll be less sin there, less idolatry. But cities are often where sin spreads from. 
like a contagious disease or a gangrene that spreads from a wound through the systems of the body to the whole body. Major cities affect the regions that they inhabit, and they have influence on the smaller places around them. The sins of major cities often spread throughout the land. Do you guys remember when COVID was kind of at its peak and it had just begun? It was the cities were the worst place to live. They were the most dangerous places because COVID spread so easily and large numbers of people living in such close proximity meant that the virus would spread quickly. We had to take precautions. We had to wear masks. We had to socially distance, move apart from one another. That's why we had, to move, we, we had to stay indoors for much of the beginning of the pandemic because uh, these, this disease was so spreadable. And the same is true with sin. Idolatry is infectious. It spreads. We influence one another. It's passed on. It's fed by others. And that's why cities are like super spreader events of idolatry because they're full of idolaters and they're filled with idols. This is really important for us, particularly for us here living in Dubai. We live in one of the most famous cities in the world that's sort of known for its wonders, its glory, its money, its all the things it can offer. It's been described as the city of superlatives. It boasts the tallest tower, the richest horse race, the largest fountain display, the wealthiest elite. One article that I read online described Dubai Mall, which is kind of named after this city, as more than a mall, rather than an, it's an attempt to capture every human desire and experience and repackage it for consumption. That's just a picture of the city that we live in. Our city is full of idols. And the vast majority of them are not of the religious kind. They're not wooden or metal images that people bow down to, though there are many of them here, and there are people from all around the world. But many of them are idols that are invisible. They're idols of the heart. An idol is anything that we treasure in our hearts more than we treasure God. One pastor famously said that our hearts are idol factories. They constantly produce new idols. As soon as we kill one, there comes another. Let me ask you, what are you tempted to worship in place of God? Or, maybe even more subtly, what are you tempted to worship alongside God? Maybe your job is an idol to you. Maybe you're willing to sacrifice your spiritual well-being on the altar of your career. Or maybe leisure and comfort are an idol to you, where you invest more and more of yourself in making life as pleasurable as possible to you, rather than offering your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. 
Or alternatively, perhaps you're spending yourself in pursuit of more and more stuff rather than being spent for the glory of God. These are only three of the myriad of idols that Dubai has to offer. And each of these idols, they're not mutually exclusive. They don't demand your total devotion. They're happy to share. These worthless idols, career, comfort, materialism, they're quite happy to be worshipped together. And these are only the tip of the iceberg of idolatry in Dubai. There are many high places in this city. Are you on guard? Are you aware of the idols that you are tempted towards? The things that you're tempted to give your heart to? The things that you're tempted to worship and to think will bring you joy and satisfaction and security? Every single one of us in this room has these. We're tempted by things. We are warring for worship in our heart against these things. One way to identify what our idols is, is to ask yourself where you already see sin in your life. And ask, what is it that you are worshiping in that moment when you sin? Another way to identify idols is to reflect on what matters the the most to you in the world? What takes up the majority of your thought life? What keeps you up at night with worry that you might lose it or you might not get it? What gives you the greatest satisfaction and joy in your life? If the answer to any of those questions isn't God, then that thing is likely an idol for you or at least a temptation. But God will not share His glory with another. Because of their idols, God says He's going to destroy Samaria. And shortly after this, God brought the Assyrians who did just that. They leveled Samaria. They conquered and enslaved the northern kingdom. But it's not just the northern kingdom that's in danger. In verses 8 through 16, the message turns from a pronouncement of judgment on Samaria to a lament over Jerusalem. Look there at verse 8. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Once again, we see this repetition that's highlighting the desperation of their situation. Micah goes on to liken their sin to an incurable wound that can't be healed. Sin spread not just in the north, but also in his own Judah all the way to the gate of Jerusalem itself, the city where God dwelt. Just imagine for a second as you look over this description of His mourning. Imagine being so grieved that you would walk around naked and barefoot as a sign of the shame of the sin of your people. Imagine walking up and down from town to town, wailing like an animal. These verses are ripe with the imagery of grieving over sin, wailing and weeping uncontrollably like jackals and ostriches. And that might sound amusing at first to some of our ears, 
But these were animals that lived in desolate and solitary places. We see wailing. We see rolling in the dust, which is like an image of going back to the dust. It's like you're dying, but you're living. We see anxiety mentioned, and then we hear the hints and the exclamations about the coming exile, with the parting gifts being mentioned, and coming conquerors, and others who don't worship God owning their land. And every one of the cities along this list of places that Micah mentions, every one of them is on the road that an invading force would take on the way to the capital city, Jerusalem. You can see that in the handout in, on page 13 of the bulletin that this was kind of like the pathway to conquering the whole nation. All along the way, we see these cities, one after the other, being declared judged. It's like one commentator put it, these towns and cities are a divine hit list. God is coming. Judgment is coming. And verse 16 concludes with a call for the nation as a whole to join the prophet in grieving over their sin, to shave their heads, to be bald like the eagle in sorrow. And the reason why? Because their own children will be dragged away into exile. Those of you with children, can you imagine? This is the consequences of sin. Your children being dragged into exile. But the call is not just for the people then and the nation then. There's a call for us too, church. When was the last time that you shed tears over your sin? That you were so grieved and moved that it hurt physically your sin? Why do you think it's so rare that we respond like that when we've sinned? It's because we don't have a right view of our own sin. And we don't have a right view of how holy and good our God is. We're persuaded just sin isn't a big deal. God will forgive. We fail to see its devastating consequences in our own lives and in the lives of others. Pastor J.C. Ryle writes, you do not see sin's true colors. Your eyes are naturally blind to its guilt and its danger. And so he encourages his reader, to get a clear view of the evil of sin. Let me encourage you as you study Scripture to allow passages like this one to break up the hard soil of your heart, to help you to see how wretched sin is, how it defiles your thoughts, your words, your actions, how it renders us all guilty and abominable before a holy God. How sin's fruit in this world is shame, and its wage in the world to come is eternal death. You can't have too serious a view of sin. It's impossible. It's not a sign of immaturity to be deeply grieved by your sin, but it's a sign of godliness and maturity to be broken, to be contrite. The more soberly that you see your sin, the more desperately you'll flee to the Lord Jesus. Raul gives us two ways for how to get a clearer view of the evil of sin. The first is that he says, think about the awful effects that sin has had on our world and ourselves. 
Micah saw how ugly sin is. Do you see it? Do you see how ugly sin is? It's, it's produced sickness and pain and famine and racism, oppression, violence, unkindness, abuse, and ultimately death. Every single one of us has been touched by the ugliness and the brutality of sin. And sin doesn't just have effects on our world, it has effects on us. Sin has left us, each one of us, bent in on ourselves, on choosing any way other than God's way. We've been born rebels against the Lord. Think about the ugliness of sin and its effects on you and the world. But think about also what it cost to make atonement for sin. And that will help you see the evil of sin. In order to provide pardon and reverse the curse of sin, God had to send His only Son to die the death of a sinner, despised and mocked, beaten and stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross. Consider the evil of sin by meditating on the cross of Christ. Take time to meditate on the awfulness of sin and allow that to lead you to, as James puts it, Be wretched, to mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your gloom, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Micah's lament over sin turns from lamentation into a rebuke at the beginning of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So far, we've only really heard about the nation's idolatry, which is enough for God's righteous wrath to burn hot against them, but it wasn't only that they failed to love the Lord, their God, the way that they ought to. They had also broken the second greatest commandment, to love their neighbors as themselves. All of God's law, all of the many, many pages of the Old Testament that we have where God's law is recounted can be summarized as love God and love one another. And God's people had utterly failed at both. We see that in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, where a woe of judgment is proclaimed over those who oppress others by devising wickedness on their beds. They spend their time scheming how to get what they want from other people late at night. And then, when they wake up early in the morning, they follow through on their plans to get what they want, because it's in the power of their hand, because they can do it. That's what oppression is. It's using the power that God has given you, the strength that He's given you, to to get what you want from others. It's a misuse of strength and authority that harms those under authority. It's not only kings and governments that oppress people. Bosses can do that too. Husbands can do that. Parents can do that. And Micah tells us that oppression, it flows out of the heart that covets. It's from wanting what we don't have and so taking it by force. And here the images of the strong taking whatever they desire from those who are weaker than them. Now, certainly oppression can and does take the form of scheming and stealing things that don't belong to us, property or finances that aren't ours, but it can also involve simply dominating people being domineering over others, pressurizing them, manipulating them to 
to get what you want by threats or punishment or force. Such sinful behavior wasn't only true of God's people hundreds of years ago, but it's true today. It continues all around the world. We see it over and over again in the news. We see it in our workplaces. We sadly even see it in our families. We see it in the church as well, around the world, and even here. This woe functions in two ways for us as God's people. First, it ought to make us pause to consider our own lives and ask ourselves, how do I treat other people? And particularly, how do I treat those who are under my authority, who I have greater strength than or power than? So, how do you treat the lowliest of society? How do you treat the waiter at the restaurant, or the checkout person at the grocery store, or the security guard in the mall, or the cleaner in the food court? And husbands, we should consider these words for ourselves too, and how we treat our wives. Are we following the example of Christ who loved His bride sacrificially and gave Himself up for her? who didn't come to demand that his bride serve him, but came to serve his bride by laying down his life as a ransom. Parents, how are we exercising our authority over our children? Are we patiently correcting them and leading them in the fear and instruction of the Lord? Or are we demanding, controlling, aggressive, or even passive and ignoring of them as a punishment. Remember how patient our Heavenly Father is with us, how merciful and forgiving and compassionate He is towards us to lead us to repentance that even while we were still sinners, He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. This woe is a, it's a warning to consider ourselves, but it also serves as a consolation as a comfort to those who face oppression. Those of you who have been mistreated by those in power over you, who've been hurt by people in authority or in position above you, who faced oppression, those of you whose bosses perhaps have taken advantage of you, they've not asked of you what was reasonable, they haven't paid you on time, they haven't asked you to do the things that your contract said, but even more than that. I want you to know from Micah that God sees everything that happens, and God cares about these injustices. These people were devising wickedness, but the Lord is said to be devising disaster against them. He says that in verse 3, and He says that there will be no escape from this disaster. Judgment is coming to Judah. Their conquerors are on the horizon. And so, we've seen Micah lament his people's situation and rebuke them for their oppression, but how did they respond when Micah spoke these words from God to them? We see that in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2. Look at verses 6 to 11. Look at verse 6 and then down at the bottom of uh, 11. This whole section is it's framed with reference to the kind of preaching that these people hated 
and the kind of preaching that they really wanted. He says, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of these things. They hated Micah's message. They hated to hear about God's judgment. They didn't want to know what God really thought about them. They'd rather cherry-pick truths about God's love and kindness and ignore His holiness and His wrath. Or worse, look down at verse 11. What What kind of preaching do they want? They want empty preaching filled with lies, with encouragements for their sinful passions. They wanted a preacher who boasts about how much he can drink, who promotes sinful passions, This is just a a picture of the kind of preaching that they wanted, someone to affirm them in the sinful passions of their flesh. And now we, we know it's possible to enjoy alcohol and to honor God, but here what's happening is that they're encouraging the so many ways that alcohol can be abused and can dishonor God. You know, hearing preaching about sin and God's wrath has never been popular. It's not just unpopular today, it was unpopular in Micah's day. Coming to church and hearing how sinful we are and how much we deserve judgment isn't anyone's favorite pep talk, is it? Great encouragement for the week ahead. You're a sinner, a great one. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Trust me, it's uncomfortable for the preacher too. But the goal of sermons, the goal of preaching, the goal of Micah's message was not to comfort the people. It's to hear from God. And as it says in verse 7, God's words do good to those who walk uprightly. God's words should prick our hearts. It should challenge us. It should make us feel uncomfortable about the sin in our lives. It should lead us to godly grief and sorrow, wailing and mourning that results in repentance and in a commitment to walk uprightly. Verses 8 through 10 tell us that God's people had rejected His Word, and they'd refused to listen to His prophets, and so their society began to unravel, and God's people rose up against each other as enemies. No one was safe, and especially the most vulnerable and precious among them, the women and the children, they were the ones who were victimized. There was no rest in God's kingdom, only death and destruction. And so far, we've had a long meditation on how they'd turned away from God to idols and how they'd turned to one another to oppress. But in in this pitch black darkness of judgment that you feel right now, that I feel right now, God shines a beam of light and hope in the very last two verses that we consider. Judgment is coming but so is salvation. Look at verses 12 and 13 as we conclude. God announces salvation for these exiles. Notice the threefold repetition once again. I will surely assemble all of you. I will gather the remnant. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, like a noisy multitude of men. God promises, even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of their deserving judgment, that He will surely gather His people 
to a place of peace and prosperity. And then in verse 13, the scene shifts from sheep secure in a pen to prisoners breaking free from their captivity and imprisonment, being led by the Lord as their king. Look at verse 13. These word pictures paint the portrait of the Lord as His people's shepherd king who tenderly leads His flock and triumphantly rescues His remnant. In a prophecy so starkly and extensively presenting sin and God's coming judgment, grace gets the final word. God promises He will deliver His people. And the glorious thing for us, for you and I, brothers and sisters, is that we know how these pictures were fully realized as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the good shepherd of whom we read earlier, who laid down His life for the sheep. Jesus opened the breach. That means He broke down the wall of the prison that we were in. He conquered sin and death by being judged for our sins and the sins of His people. And He conquered death by rising triumphantly from the grave in victory. He went to the cross to die the death that sinners deserve for their sins so that they might be set free from sin and the judgment that it so righteously deserves. And what must we do? Look at verse 13. Twice it tells us, He goes on before them. They simply follow Him. They simply follow their shepherd king out of the prison. They simply follow Him out of slavery into freedom. So are you following Him? Are you following our shepherd king, Jesus? If not, You can do it today. Turn to Him in faith and repentance. Follow Him. Give your life to Him. It's like we sing in the hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Amen. Let's follow Him. Let's go to our Shepherd King together in prayer. O Lord, we recognize that we have all sinned against Your holy name. We've each turned to our own ways. We've worshipped created things rather than you, the creator. We've coveted. We've mistreated others. We've rejected your word when it highlights our sin. We all justly stand condemned and under your judgment. But Lord, we praise you that judgment is not the final word. You've given us grace in Christ, our shepherd king. Help us to follow Him from now and forevermore. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen.